0: Abundant in volume yet scarce, soothing and relaxing, yet bearing a devastating force. Defies the laws of physics and it can heal as much as it can harm. It is the source of life. I'm Idan, and from Israel Newtech and PI Media, this is Waterline. Welcome back to Waterline. The year 2007 marks an important milestone in humanity's course through history. There were 6.7 billion of us, and a tad more than 50% of us, lived in cities. The great cities of ancient times, just as those of modern times, were centers of trade, places of worship, and most importantly, the seat Of great political power. Whether it is the ancient Greeks model of city-states or the Romans model of a mega-capital city and many others scattered over the entire empire, a city is, at the end of the day, a place where a whole lot of people are condensed into a small area. It can sprawl to become a mega-city such as Tokyo, Manila, Mumbai, New York, or Mexico City, where tens of millions of people live, or be a quaint, tiny, picturesque city such as Adamstown, the smallest capital city in the world and indeed the only town or any other form of settlement in the Pitcairn Islands. How small, you ask? 50 inhabitants. That's five zero, full stop. These places share... A very basic reality. Today's episode is all about the city and I. I as in the very private I myself that we all are. Two basic axioms. We human beings must have water in order to live. We human beings are very good at creating rubbish and human waste. In a small village or in a rural area, water can be sourced from a stream or a well. Discarding wastewater can be done down the stream, not very neighborly, or buried in the ground. Obviously, both practices contaminate water sources, and I am sure you are well aware that this podcast does not promote any of these practices. For millennia, especially from the times we began living in cities, infrastructure was built and systems were put in place to ensure the smooth running of water and wastewater to, and from the city. We begin today's discussion about water in a city with a very simple truth the architect, Dr. Noam Austerlitz points out. I would like you to take me on a journey, mm-hmm. please. Mm-hmm. A city is not a thing that our generation designed, thought about or created, not even the past two centuries. We're talking about the days of old Babylonia, Mesopotamia, The Greeks, the Romans perfected the notion of a city, not only a city-state, but a city that is the beacon of an empire.
1: Mm -hmm. Think of Rome. Mm -hmm. Rome during the Roman times was eco-effective? In a very uh, strange way, yes, you would say that, because it was dependent on the agriculture areas around it. It has been interacting with villages, surfaces, rivers. If you see a city, an old city, you see that the reason that it was founded, that there was water over there. That was the first and foremost thing that people looked for. In many cases, there were springs, and also there was kind of a river or bay. Something connected to water started the city. Without that, no city. The Romans were the first to move water with aqueducts from far away to the city. This was actually the beginning of modern city, the modern city that can take resources from outside into the city. This was only part of the resources they used. Most resources were created and consumed on the same place. And this is one of the things that I would say today, if we want to make better cities, we have to connect the places we consume and the places we manufacture things. We have to bring them more close together.
0: So in a very weird way, you say that the Romans did it right. Or maybe the birth of the aqueduct, this is this
1: is what created this problem that we have today. Uh, to some extent, they did it right. One of my favorite uh, books is uh, the book of Trivius, the books of architecture. Uh, a Roman scholar, a Roman architect, wrote actually the foundation of architecture. And if you think of the Renaissance man, the Renaissance man aspires to be what vitruvius described as an architect for vitruvius architects must know how water runs in how to design an aqueduct he must know astronomy he must be a specialist of climate of materials engineering Uh, so for vitruvius an architect a real architect is an expert on many many fields and can integrate all these together to create a healthy and productive house or a city or a Stadium or whatever they did. So this is kind of um, a goal for us to aspire to, to be specialists in many fields and to be able to integrate them to create a healthy space. When did things go wrong? Where did the decline begin? The the industrial revolution changed everything. It disconnected manufacturing and consumption. You could manufacture a thing in China and consume it here. It disconnected resource and the cost of resource and the cost of product. Because if you have cheap labor, like slaves, or then you have cheap energy, uh, like fossil fuel, the cost of energy and the cost of pollution is not calculated into the cost of the product. So then you have cheap products, you have too much consumption from one hand, and you have too much use of resources from the other hand. It did not only pollute rivers and land, it also polluted people's mind. Because people do not have to think of where this comes from, how much it costs to produce it, what kind of resources were put into manufacturing that. You can just take it and throw it away. And this is the whole idea of 20th century which increases that way of thinking.
0: Rishon LeZion is Israel's fourth largest city with a population of roughly 250,000 people. It is in Israel's central region, south of Tel Aviv, and on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Today, you can still find some small reminders of the city's past glory as a small rural town that was surrounded by orchards growing citrus fruits for export, a trade its founders were very proud of. As Israel grew, so did Rishon LeZion, and the orchards made way to the creation of an urban settlement, a modern city a modern city with a very strong woman at the helm of the Municipal Water and Wastewater Utility Company. Sally Levy was an educator and a science teacher in a high school in Richon Sion for many years. She went on to lead the city's education department. She became the CEO of the municipality of a neighboring town. Today, she is the CEO of Meniv, Richon LeZion's water and wastewater utility company. You can hear how proud she is to be doing what she's doing. Managing water is not just managing water. It's managing wastewater as well. That's true. So you have two different systems running side by side or one on top of the other.
2: Um, I think one is a result of the other, hmm. <laughs> if you look at it this way. First, I would like to tell you that managing is managing. doesn't matter what you manage. Uh, and managing requires many skills that you have to put together to be able to manage anything, and especially a field which is so important, and you need to be very responsible to manage it, and that's water, which is the first system that you relate to. You know, to supply water, which is 24-7 and in good quality, is something that uh, puts a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. And you have to be very aware of what's happening there, You have to look around all the time to put a lot of thinking into it. And that's one aspect. We'll probably get back to it later. The other one is, of course, the the sewage, which is a result of using water. You know, just close your eyes and imagine that you open your faucet or you flush the toilet and nothing happens. Nothing comes out. You take it for granted that when you open the shower, you have running water. You take it for granted that when you push the little handle, everything goes away. But there's a lot of work and a lot of thought and a lot of management that lies behind it. And these are the two main systems that we run as a water utility. Rishon Litsion is kind of a pioneer in many terms of, um, of trying to do different things around water. The third system is, of course, the drainage system which I think we're probably um, the only uh, water utility that runs the um, drainage system on a level that we do, which is planning and running it. um, In Israel? In Israel. Israel. I think in the world, actually.
0: In early 2019, the Israel-Colorado Innovation Fund organized a tour in Israel for CEOs and senior staff of water and wastewater utilities from across the USA to meet Israeli water sector specialists and to learn firsthand about innovative water technologies. Two of the guests on this tour are featured in today's episode. First in is Chris Dermody, Chief Information Officer at Denver Water, the water utility company of Denver and its suburbs in the state of Colorado, USA. The Mile High City is home to roughly 700,000 people. He says,
3: "Water supply is a challenge. Why is that? Mainly because the majority of our water supply is surface water, as opposed to groundwater. Mm-hmm. And often, given our our um, climate and the changing and shifting of climate over the, over the course of some time, we're finding that our supply is less and less dependable. We can sometimes go into a drought for a season or two, and that happens more and more often." We can sometimes have a a massive amount of precipitation, um, not spread more evenly as we would prefer. So those kinds of um, changes in climate are affecting our supply. We're very interested in protecting and and securing our environment. Mm -hmm. You know, Colorado is a beautiful state. And so we want to be very thoughtful and work with others. And that's kind of the key. Mm -hmm. Today, we ultimately want to achieve what we need, but we want to do it in a far more collaborative way. Meaning? Working closely with all of the stakeholders that are involved, from political office uh, officials to conservationists to environmentalists, we want to make sure we work in collaboration and do the things that will help us achieve our goals and help our our partners and stakeholders achieve theirs. It's all about balance.
0: July 16th, 1790, is the day that a new city was born, made up of two smaller towns in Virginia and Maryland, the newly incorporated entity became Washington, D.C., the capital of the United States of America. We think today about the power the city encompasses. However, population-wise, it is quite a small city of some 700,000 people. Historical figures show that in, let us say, in 1860, before the Civil War, The district's population reached 75,000 people. Less than 10% of the population of New York on its 800,000 people at the time. The 1860s are a crucial time in the city's history, but not because of what you're thinking about. You guessed right, water-wise, it was a key moment in the city's history. A system befitting presidents, legislators, and Supreme Court judges was built not without its challenges, though, as Biju George, DC Water's CEO, explains.
4: The sole source of our drinking water uh, is the Potomac River. We do have two treatment plants, but they both use Potomac uh, as their source. And water is brought to DC uh, through a, an aqueduct, which was built in 1856 or uh, there around. And then uh, so we, we receive the water from about nine miles uh, away and then uh, bring it down to our treatment plants, uh, the two treatment plants uh, uh, in DC. But the interesting thing is, uh, the age of our drinking water pipe in DC is 81 years. That's a median age, which means half the pipe. Uh, uh, you know, wood are made out of wood. <laughs> well,
0: 81 years, if that's the median, so at least half of it is made out of
4: wood. Well, we, we had wooden pipes, but I don't think we have any more wooden pipes in our service. But we have pipes going back to uh, 1850s, 1852s, during the Civil War era. I mean, you know, the pipes which was installed during that era. We do have those, I mean, are still in service. Uh, we had a pipe break uh, about a year ago, which was uh, a pipe that was built around 1858 or so, I mean, or 1860. So we, we, we do have those challenges, you know, infrastructure going back, uh, you know, 150 plus years.
0: It is a tale of three cities on our show today. They all share the same realities. How to make the most out of not as much as they would have been happy to have. And infrastructure is the name of the game. Chris Dermody.
3: So obviously infrastructure, infrastructure maintenance is critical. So non-revenue build water uh, is is a challenge for everybody. In Denver, at Denver Water, our numbers are somewhere in the 5 to 6% range. We'd like to make it lower. Is it possible? Of course it's possible. Every distribution system has leakage. Every distribution system has main breaks. So That suggests our asset management program needs to be very smart, understand where the risks are so that we can take action through our capital improvement plan to either remediate um, those risks or eliminate the risks by either rehabilitating or replacing those water mains that are likely to break in the short-term future. So we use data, we use information and analytics to figure out where we should be planning our rehabilitation and replacement work.
0: A very big challenge every municipal water system has, as our devout listeners know, is NRW, non-revenue water. Water supplied by the water utility company lost on the way to the end consumer by way of leakage and faults in the system that is buried in the ground. Biju George.
4: So we do have leaks. The total production coming to our system subtracted from the water is totally billed for. So there could be billing leaks as well. I mean, it's about 16%. So we replace our pipes at uh, about 1% a year. So we replace about 13 miles of pipe during a typical year. Out of? Uh, out of the 1,300 miles. So it's going to take me over 70 years to replace online cast iron pipes. So that's, that's the reason why I'm here. I'm looking for technologies, innovators who can come up with... Uh, technologies that can, uh, you know, help DC prevent uh, such issues and then, uh, you know, achieve such advantages sooner. Because I don't think my customers can wait for 70 years to, uh, you know, eliminate all the uh, online cast iron pipes from DC.
2: Sally Levy. You lose a lot of water if the pipes are not right. The water loss in, in every place is a major issue because it's a lot of money. Every drop that goes into the earth and you don't sell it, that you bought it and you didn't sell, is a major issue in terms of economics of water. If my organization is more efficient and my water loss is is small and uh, I put a lot of money into infrastructure into renewing the system then I get a benefit from the state and I pay less for the water I buy. Now if I pay less for the water I buy I have more money to invest into back into the water system and the re- and of course sewage system. And that's kind of an incentive that we get from the government to do that stuff. And that's where I get the money from. So basically, um, it works as a, as a closed system in terms of uh, economics. And the more efficient you are, the more money you have to invest back into water and storage and to invest into new things that you want to put into the, um, into the system. And that's how you have money for um, new technologies we have money because we don't lose money. So, or we lose very little money.
0: There are many ways to avoid losing money. High tech
3: is one of them. Chris Dermody. When it comes to in house leakage uh, and water loss, we're on a path right now to transition to a technology that we often just refer to as AMI Advanced Meter Reading Infrastructure. Today, just to put it into context, our meter reading is done on a monthly basis using a radio-based technology, so it's relatively efficient. AMR has been implemented now for almost 20 years. We began the implementation of AMR in the year 2000. Now we're going, beginning the transition, and I, I should emphasize just beginning it, um, to, from AMR to AMI. AMI will provide much of the same functionality, but more efficiently, more effectively. It won't require one of our employees to drive a utility truck down the street and wake up the ERTs, as we call them, to capture the meter readings, it'll all be done without human intervention. We will be able to read not only once a month with our AMI system, but once an hour. We could look at that data in a real-time environment and say something's happened at this house. It's 2.30 in the morning and consumption has just jumped up. There's something wrong. No one is taking a shower at 2.30 a.m. for For that long. (laughs) At that volume of water either. Exactly, right. So using technology, we can become more effective and more efficient.
0: In our episode about technology as part of the Israeli Model Mini series, Eli Peretz, the CEO of Futilis, talked about the 21st century plumber that gave that episode its name. And yet, no matter how technology can benefit low-tech industries, the shift, or even a small-scale incorporation of new technologies, might be a challenge. How easy is it for you to incorporate new technologies into your own system?
2: As any other new thing that you bring into an organization, especially a running strong as an organization, it's not always easy, because people are in their comfort zone, and they, they don't very easily um, accept new things and new technologies. But if you're aware of that and you're aware of where you're going to have to deal with the people that oppose to what you want to bring and you do it wisely and and you incorporate them into the process, you start the process with the people, then you can do that. And, you know, people are proud to do new things. Eventually, people are proud to do new things and they're proud to show that, hey, we're here, we live, we do new things.
0: After incorporating new technologies... Scrutiny is always important, even crucial
3: at times. Chris Dermody. It's all about doing the work that needs to be done in a less costly fashion. Ultimately, that involves the elimination of waste. And waste is really just anything that that we do, that we spend time and money on, that doesn't add value to our customers. Every organization has many, many processes, business processes. Uh, Most of them are enabled by information technology solutions. But the process, the, the seven steps or the ten steps, whatever it may involve, may not be very efficient. There may be some waste involved in those processes. For example, um, one step in the process may involve transferring your product, your interim product, to somebody else for review. And passing that to them on a batch basis. Maybe all of the the, the, the ten widgets that were produced that day get delivered to somebody else at the end of the day so they can work on them tomorrow and then deliver them back for the next step in the process that that basic activity may be highly inefficient and wasteful maybe it would be smarter to provide those widgets one at a time as opposed to batching them up mm. make it smooth let, Streamlining. It, let it flow make it streamlined exactly if we can provide through information technology services and solutions, greater efficiency, greater effectiveness, and better decision making, then I think we're doing our job well. Biju George.
4: The way how I look at uh, uh, innovation or a new technology is creating value. So my operating budget is about 460 million US dollars a year. My capital budget is about the same, about 400 to 500 million dollars depending on I mean it varies a little bit year to year. So you're looking uh, anywhere from 800 to a billion dollar uh, total budget. So to me every opportunity to before I spend that dollar it's an opportunity to look for okay is there a better way or a better solution which will probably provide a better result for the same amount of money or the same result at a lower cost. I've seen many solutions that I'm really interested but none of them are Hundred percent, I'm saying, okay, I can take this and it's going to solve my problem. Absolutely, hundred percent. No, that's not the case. But I have so- seen some very unique solutions uh, with a little bit of help, uh, uh, you know, from our side to provide a pilot, and then engaging them to solve a problem. Probably, we can create a much more uh, higher value than the, the the innovator has probably you know first imagined when he created the product. That's the opportunity I've seen.
0: To learn more about Israeli technologies and the Israeli water sector? The people of Israel New Tech will be glad to answer your questions. Log on to IsraelNewTech.com and don't forget to follow Waterline on Facebook to get updates and give us your feedback. You can also follow me on Twitter at idanc 79 And now, back to the episode. It is all fine and dandy trying to deal with the past, reimagine, reengineer, redesign, and redo old systems. However, what if one has the opportunity to look forward and start from scratch? Back to the conversation with Sally Levy, CEO of Menivri Chonletzion, the city's water and wastewater utility company. You told me um, before we started this conversation, something, and then you looked at me, why are you smiling? And then I said, you know, because it makes a lot of sense, but you don't really stop and think about it. And you said...
2: Well, I said, look, you have to go back all the way to understand that every new area, you start building a new neighborhood. Where do you start? Of course, you start with everything that is underneath the earth. And the basic way is water. And storage, you can't start a new neighborhood without putting infrastructures for water and storage. Otherwise, you'll have nice buildings, but no water.
0: Now, you said that when we talked about the fact that you said, you know, right now I finished planning for 2050.
2: Yes, that's true. Again, we're talking about managing, management and being alert and uh, being aware of what's happening Or like you said, the city and I, and I said the city and I, E-Y-E, because you have to look around and see what's going to happen in the next 30 years. So the way we built our program, our working program, is in two different levels. A, new stuff, and B, renewing old stuff. So right now we're asking me about new stuff, new neighborhoods. So we go into the municipality and we tell them, what are your plans for the next 30 years? Where are you going to build new neighborhoods? Where are you going to build new gardens? What are you going to do in the city for the next 30 years? And we take all that data and we put it together and we see where we're going to need to invest later. Now, it has an effect not only on the new areas that are going to be built, but it affects the old areas too because the new systems are going to be combined with the old system. So if I need to change a pipe in one of the old streets, I need to take in consideration what's going to be the capacity of that pipe 30 years from now or 20 years from now. So maybe I, not, I don't only have to change it, maybe I have to enlarge it. So uh, that's how we work. We look 30 years ahead and we go backwards by cutting the time until what we do now, looking at what's going to happen in the future and in that planning, we take in consideration technology, which we might want to put in now before you start, because some of the technologies are easier to, to imply when you start a new neighborhood, not when you have to change something that is already put in.
0: What would your dream new neighborhood look like?
2: That's a tough question, but I'll try and give you a little bit of my vision. A, I would like to put in the infrastructures in a way that if I need to change them, I can do it without opening the streets again. So I will take in consideration where I have to put my ditches. The other thing is I will look into where can I put all kinds of devices that will give me information about what's happening in the system. And all those devices should be transmitting devices, broadcasting devices. And like I said, it has to have uh, transmitting water meters, it has to have meters that that tell me, what's the uh, capacity, for example, of sewage? I want to know if the storage comes up before it comes out of the ditch. I would like to have sensors of um, flow, of capacity, any information that they can get, um, quality of water.
0: So, effectively, what you're saying now is that if the city says, you know, I would like to build a new neighborhood in this area, you will come back to them and say, okay... It's great that you want to build it in this area. This is the outline of how it should be built. But well,
2: it works vice versa. The city tells me this is the outline of the neighborhood. You put your system in the best way that will give the best quality for of life for the people. The way you build a new neighborhood g- goes in stages. The first stage is you put your basic infrastructures of water, sewer, and then once the, the the houses are built, then you attach them to the system which you already put ahead of time, knowing how the, the neighborhood is going to look like. Now, you talked about my um, my vision. One of the things we do not address enough, sometimes we do not address enough, is the, is the drainage like we started talking at the beginning. Because once you start a new neighborhood, it's not any more sense. Again, it's urbanization. And in my vision, the way I would like to see it is that by planning a new neighborhood, you think ahead of time, what are you going to do with the water that comes from the sky?
0: Architect Dr. Noam Osterlitz.
1: My agenda as an architect is to work with the flow of land and the flow of water and wind and sun. These are the presents that we get when we come to a space, to a place that we're going to redesign or change. We're going to change the place, but we have to see it as complex of presence and other things that you are not uh, going to like so much like uh, too much heat too much water actually i start my design with the flow of water no matter scale it is i observe the way water would go around or in or out of spaces and this actually the basic of basics of architecture because then you have to take care of the way topography is redesigned. If you observe what happens in cities or settlements that are designed like that, you would see they have a lot of problems of water management or stormwater management. You have to spend a lot of energy and a lot of money in order to take care of holding the water itself, okay? And not letting them flow from one place to another. By that we can actually save a lot of water in design. If we design it from the beginning with water and with water flow and with topography and not against topography and against water, trying to make it do something it doesn't want to do, this is the way we save money. And we can save about, I would say, up to 20% of what we spend on land development by rethinking of that issue.
2: It's an interesting thought. Sally Levy. But um, eventually when you come to build a neighborhood, eventually you have no choice but covering the ground. So you leave some green areas and that's okay. And of course, if you think ahead of time and you make those green areas, as you said, with the natural curves of the earth, you may be able to save some of the floods that will come later. You may be able to put the water in a place that you can really enjoy it even later. Unfortunately, that's not the way it usually happens. Most of the world, and most of Israel as well, what you do is when you build a new neighborhood, you put a nice and fat pipe into the earth, you make sure that all the runoff water and the drainage will go into that pipe, and you send that pipe into the sea or into the close river or the close lake. And that's what you do. And of course, when you have more runoff water and it gets to fool that nice and fat pipe, then you have floods. And my view, my vision is to think outside the box or maybe outside the pipe Mm -hmm. and uh, see what you can do with that water, how you can use that water and reuse that water. And that's one of the things we do in Rishon Letzion, which is um, very unique in our system. And um, it adds up to what I think as running the water in general. So what we do in Rishon, we run the run of water. We collect the water. We do not send it into the sea. We collect it in a water reservoir, which started just as a water reservoir. And today it's a great recreation area because, you know, Israel is poor with water. And any little reservoir, which, of course, we call lake, but in international terms, it's probably just a water (laughs) reservoir. But in terms of Israel, it's a nice-to-have thing. And um, we collect the water there. We move it to an area where we can let it insert into the aquifer, into the earth. We enrich the aquifer. And we use that recycled water to irrigate all the the municipality gardens in that area, which is about a third of the city of Rishon, which is a lot. So it's green, it's clean, and it's economic-wise great in many ways. You know, first rain brings with it a lot of garbage. When it goes into the sea after it went all over the city with the oil and with whatever people throw into the drainage system and it comes into the sea, you should try and go to the Mediterranean Sea and see what happens after the first rain. I think not. (laughs) You think not. And looking at the changing climate all over the world and in Israel in specific, basically... Every rain is a first rain because there is such a gap between one rain and another rain. And the amount of rain that comes out at one time, is it, it can be, you know, half of the annual um, rain average rain quantity. So it's clean because it does not go into the sea. It does not pollute the sea or the lake or the, uh, the um, rivers. It's green because you collect the water. You do not waste it once it's gone into the sea, it's not yours anymore. You collect it, it's yours, you can deal with it, you can insert it into the aquifer, and you can reuse it, even, and you know, at the filtration of the water is the natural filtration of the earth, it's the best filtration that exists. You know, for in Rishon, for example, we had 200 millimeters of rain in 30 hours, which is half of the annual rain we have in Rishon, let's see on. So... We already inserted into the uh, aquifer 3 million cubic meters of water, and the winter is not over yet.
0: Managing stormwater is a problem worldwide. DC Water invested in the past several years in several projects to mitigate the problems heavy rain pour might cause. They built the Anacostia River Tunnel, part of a series of four tunnels that are designed to capture and clean water during heavy rainfalls before it reaches the Potomac and Anacostia Rivers, alongside investing in green infrastructure, put plainly, enabling water to percolate into the ground in an urban setting, making room for water by eliminating heavily paved areas. Biju George.
4: Green infrastructure is the way how the nature uh, manages stormwater, Uh, you know, by uh, uh, retention and then absorbing it and then, uh, uh, you know, possibly treating to the soil, taking some of the contaminants off. So that's green infrastructure. Green infrastructure uh, is uh, gaining a lot of uh, uh, popularity as, a, as an alternate to tunnel or, or a complement to the tunnel. So, the way how we manage that is we will implement Raw Creek and uh, uh, two other, or uh, there are about total four green infrastructure projects uh, to, uh, by named in our consent decree. Uh, we test them, and then once we see the uh, benefit from the pilot, then we will be doing them at a larger scale. So we may not need a, you know, a tunnel or it will complement in addition to the tunnel that we have with additional uh, socio-environmental benefits. So
0: by doing this green infrastructure, you actually replenish groundwater that you never use?
4: Uh, it, I don't think it, it is replenishing the groundwater. It is uh, 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 you know, holding the water so it doesn't uh, move so fast into the combined sewer and surcharging it. So it retains some capacity or provides some latency in our system. And also, if we do have some stormwater with some contaminants from the street, it will provide some level of removal of contaminants from it. So that's a true benefit of it.
0: Sally Levy, what is a city?
2: I think it's kind of a philosophical question. (laughs) But I think a city is a society of people living together in a certain area which are looking into having the best life they can have as an individual and as a society. People choose the places they live by different measures, but basically what they want is a day-to-day life for which they get all their needs with no effort. That's a city in terms maybe of their citizens themselves. And they want to know that somebody takes care of them. A city has to be run it has to be managed and it has to be managed in so many aspects you can't even imagine.
0: And what is water in a city?
2: Water is a basic need, I think. It's a basic need that people take for granted. All they want is to be able to open the faucet or open the shower and have the water running. The better the water utility runs the water, the safer the citizen feels and... It gives them a quality of life because feeling safe is one of the basic needs of people.
0: We began this episode with the cities of the past. Technology and engineering saw the evolution of our urban centers, and by 2050, it is estimated that two-thirds of the world's population, a mere 7 billion people by that year, will be city dwellers. And with so many of us being crammed together in an entity that has water and wastewater running through its veins, I posed the question to Dr. Osterlitz.
1: What is a healthy city then? One of my favorite scholars is Christopher Alexander. And Christopher Alexander, in a very late paper he published, claimed that one of the biggest faults of our time is that we see buildings as a prime issue, and the spaces between the buildings are in a second or third place. No place for human, being, no, human beings. No, no, it's just it's just human being is not part of the. There are numbers, right? There are kind of uh, users. Healthy thinking starts from the human being, starts from the need needs of the human being, as Christopher Alexander says. We have to rethink the space between the buildings as the most important thing that we do in a city. My vision is that this apartment building would be creating things and not only uh, consuming things. So it would create energy, it would create water as a resource or recycle water, so it would be kind of a a water factory. Uh, It would maybe create food. So if uh, an apartment building or a school or a municipality center and so on can create energy, food, water, we are in a different place, right? So this is why I'm not in despair uh, when I'm thinking of uh, 10, mil- 10 billion uh, people population. On the planet? On the planet, yes. It can be done. According to my vision, uh, the ground floor is uh, full of uh, uh, spaces for community. So spaces for community would be halls for a gathering, uh, also a garden that people can grow uh, vegetables and work together over there, and uh, also some maybe commercial uses that would be offices of people can be, can be uh, uh, working down there. So that could be a mixed-use space. That would be the first two floors, I would say. Then there's kind of apartments, uh, which can uh, be with terraces, uh, on each terrace, I would rec- encourage people to grow some of their uh, needs, some like herbs for the kitchen, some sherry tomatoes, some strawberries, uh, oregano for your pizza. Is uh, It's very, very unique. Like it's com- something that connects you to this experience of where food comes from. So it's more like in terms of experiencing and making you feel good than uh, real consumption. Okay, It's more like, uh, like that. Then uh, the roof is usually today, if you look at the roof, you would say to me, "What? Well, this is a technical space, it's all full of machines and so on. The roof itself can become both uh, a, a, an area for uh, creating energy, for collecting water, and for growing vegetation. And also maybe it can be some kind of a gathering space for, for the community of the house. I think that uh, in some, to, to some extent, uh, everything that you've seen here, like having some water ponds, uh, collecting the water from the, the roof and from the, the rain, rainwater systems and uh, percolating them into the ground, maybe taking care of some of the wastewater on site, that's all possible on a big apartment complex.
0: I asked Oded Distel, head of Israel New Tech, to describe the future holds. Oded, what would be the urban water utopia?
5: You know, the concept of uh, our cities today is that uh, we use kind of a water resource, lake, river, groundwater, maybe desalination, and we deliver the water to our house, use it, collect wastewater, transport it, to a wastewater facility somewhere, treat it, and then, in the Israeli case, use the treated water for irrigation. In many other places, release the clean water, clean affluent, back to nature, to the sea, wherever. I think that the the future of our cities is going to be something much more decentralized, where we are going to generate water uh, very close to uh, uh, the point of uh, consuming the water and treating the affluent, the uh, wastewater, again, very close to the point of the production of wastewater. And uh, by that, we're going to save a lot of energy, infrastructure, time, building all those huge infrastructures in, uh, in modern cities. So what's holding us back? You know, the water sector is uh, very conservative. Uh, We are uh, captured in uh, old traditions. This is the way we do it. uh, Since Roman times. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Basically from the Roman times uh, until now. And if we uh, look at irrigation from the Egyptian times. (laughs) So revolutions uh, do not happen in our sectors. It's uh, evolutions that uh, take place uh, step by step. Can we as humanity make bigger strides? I think yes, we, we definitely can and we, um, we must. Hmm. Uh, we, we, we have to do it in a faster way. Otherwise, we are stuck with the business as usual concept and, and, and we cannot allow it to ourselves. So, if we look at the uh, the Israeli model of the five points star model that speaks about uh, one education, uh, technology, structure, pricing, and legal structure, and the importance of connecting uh, all those points into one uh, vivid, dynamic, flexible system, uh, I think this is the key. To move faster and to make our cities uh, smarter.
0: Waterline was brought to you by Israel Newtech and is a PI Media production.